Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick. Well, given the turbulent and uncertain time in which business owners now operate, we have decided to add a regular contributor to Business Matters to discuss the rapidly evolving macro and microeconomic factors which impact your business. Mark Coleman, former economist with the European Central Bank and founder of Octavian Research and Public Affairs, will be our resident economist and he joins us now. Mark, you have an impressive career, so perhaps start by providing us with an insight into it. Thank you. It's great to be on Southeast Radio. Thank you for having me. You're very kind to say that. I'm very fortunate that some of the some of the most uh, prestigious organisations in in the country and Europe uh, let me in to work with them. Uh, I was hope I was worthy of it. So I started my career almost 30 years ago in the Department of Finance, analysing and forecasting our competitiveness, preparing for European Monetary Union. I then moved to the European Central Bank, which was essentially the key workhorse of Monetary Union, and picked up a couple of qualifications on the way in the areas of um, an MBA and uh, sort of policy specialized uh, qualifications and economics at master's level. And I found myself as an economics editor of the Irish Times then in 2005, where for two years I tried to issue as many warnings about the crash the coming crash as possible. But in economics, you've got to be what we call counter-cyclical. So when times are good, you have to kind of tone things down. But when times are bad, you kind of need to talk things up. So I became economics editor of News Talk in 2007. I became a columnist with the Sunday Independent. And that's when I started writing books. I wrote about four books over that period of 2007 to 2015. And as comment was getting too negative, I started to look to a more long-term positive narrative. So in early 2008, I said, yes, there'll be a recession, but I wrote a book called The Best Is Yet To Come. It predicted that by 2020, we would have a population in the Republic of 5 million and 7 million in the in an all-Ireland basis. And I argued that we needed to start building houses for that early and that we could use that house-building project to soak up some of the construction job losses that were happening. 2015, then I went to work for IBEC, which was a great privilege to do that. And I helped to spearhead the drive to bring jobs into the international financial services sector, including to the Southeast. Great employers like BNY Mellon, Zurich, TaxPack. I became secretary of something called the IFS 2020 strategy, which is now called Ireland for Finance, and worked with government at a high level to try and spread the jobs growth in that very exciting sector. And then three years ago, I rolled up all of my um, experience and I said, right, it's time to go out in consultancy on my own. I had accumulated about a quarter century of experience across media and economics. So I said, Octavian, we produce economic analysis and reports for clients and advocacy. Uh, We advise government departments and local authorities on infrastructure projects from a spending point of view and an environmental point of view. And then thirdly, we organize conferences and events. So, for example, a couple of weeks ago, I had the honor of chairing the World Credit Congress. And I think that segues into what we want to talk about, because that World Credit Congress happened in the Aviva Stadium, 400 delegates from around the world. They're all credit professionals. And I can tell you what they were telling us at the Congress is very, very worrying. We are looking, unfortunately, at a rising tide of late payments, insolvencies and bankruptcies, particularly hitting the small business sector, not just in Ireland, but around Europe. 
and it is largely due to the rapid extent of interest rate rises and inflation in the last couple of months. Mark, I do want to touch upon three macro-level issues facing Ireland over the next number of years and get your assessment of those this morning. The first one is in relation to inflation and interest rates. Yeah, so look, let me read out from, if you don't mind, I don't like to read out from, from a book, but, but um, you know, can I read out just a, a paragraph or two from a book called Bank, the, the, Back from the Brink, which I wrote in 2009. It was my second book. And it says, look, it says, um, both the EU, this is when interest rates had been dropped to zero in 2009. And in my analysis, the problem with, with the crash, the financial crash between 2008 and 2013, it fundamentally wasn't really just the banks, although they played a role. It was the fact that interest rates had been too low during the good years between 2002 and 2007. And that's a view that I made clear within the European Central Bank and since then. And I wrote that the U.S. Fed and the ECB, the U.S. Fed is the American Central Bank, must adopt an iron rule of never again allowing the central policy rate to flow, fall below the rate of inflation. And a floor of at least 2% must be put under the key policy rates such as the main refinancing facility. Now, sorry, this is a bit boring, but I'm getting to the point in a minute. And it said that the ECB and Fed must repair the long-term structure of policy rates, steering them back to levels that restore reasonable averages for real interest rates. What a real interest rate is basically, when you take the nominal rate of, uh, of, of interest and you subtract the rate of inflation, what I was saying was it should always be positive. Now, for a couple of years in the last global crisis, 08, 09, 2010, it was all right to break that rule. But that rule was broken uh, on a prolonged basis for almost a decade. And I'm afraid that the savage rises in interest rates that we are experiencing now, which are putting your listeners to the pin of their collar, and which are threatening many thousands, if not tens of thousands of businesses with crisis in the coming 18 months, um, are, I'm afraid, a result of that action not being taken, as I recommended in my 2009 book, between 2014 and 2018. Um, there was a failure to act in time. So unfortunately, we are now left with a situation where interest rates have increased by 200 basis points, that's 2%, in the time that it used to take a central bank three years to do it. It's now done it in less than six months. And that's on the back of inflation partly which is caused by the factors I've experienced, I've I've outlined, but also, of course, exacerbated by the Ukraine war and Russia's aggression in the Ukraine. Um, But but the the Ukraine situation has made a bad situation worse, but it didn't create that bad situation, in my view. And I called inflation in June of last year. So in June of last year, that's almost 18 months ago, our consultancy produced a forecast that said inflation was going to rise and rise rapidly. And at that time, nobody was buying into it. And I had the honor of debating the central bank governor, Gabriel Makloof, a very nice man, in September. And he was sticking to that September of 2021, by the way. He was sticking to the central bank's line that inflation might hit 3 or 4%, but wouldn't rise much more than that. Well, it's now uh, in, at Europe level, it's over 10% and rising and it's at 40-year record levels. And uh, central bankers are responding to this. 
Um, but I'm not sure that the rate increases they are implementing are going to uh, address the inflation problem because, as, as we know, some of the inflation problem is coming from the Ukraine. Interest rate rises are not going to stop Russian tanks. Um, they will do some good in in, in, in repairing, um, you know, the, the property markets, which is driving inflation. But it should be done, in my view, on a much more gradual level uh, over the next two or three years. And I'm afraid that another couple of uh, rate hikes of between 50 and 75 basis points will destroy tens of thousands of businesses that are otherwise viable. That is my big concern. Mark, what is your outlook for further interest rate increases in 2023? I had looked at the last rate increase by the ECB, which was 225 basis points, between about, I think, the middle of 2005, if my memory serves me correctly, and the end of 2007, which is a period of just, just around two, two and a half years. And my prediction was that the ECB would do that over 18 months. Now, even I was taken by, and I was the first person to predict interest rate rises back in January of this year, our consultancy, uh, when the ECB was saying, no, we're not going to increase rates. In January, I said, look, you're going to have to increase rates. But I was I was calling for 200 basis points over 18 months, and then maybe another uh, 100 basis points the year after that. They've now gone 200 basis points up in the space of five or six months. So my call would be um, there's pressure for a 75 basis point rise in December. Uh, they're, they're meeting in a couple of weeks' time. I think they will do 50. Uh, and my hope is that sanity will prevail and we will next year see a series of 25 basis point rate hikes between uh, you know Q1 or first quarter of next year and Q4 of, of, of next year. And that then they will they will pause. I hope that's what they're going to do. If they go up 75 basis points in in December, and then have another huge hike in January, February, or March, I am really worried about a recession in Europe, and I am really worried about a savage domestic recession in this country. And because we've abolished, you know, cut mortgage interest relief very significantly during the global crisis, and didn't restore that. That is going to have a severe impact on households all over the country. In fact, it already is. The next topic I do want to discuss with you this morning is in relation to taxation and public spending. What are your thoughts on the government's approach to these? So I think it was very welcome that the government increased the uh, threshold on the standard rate band to €40,000. Um, but I can only speak with experience from Germany, which is a country I've lived and worked in for many years um, and you don't pay the top rate of tax in Germany until you hit well over €150,000. So although it's very welcome and fair dues to Pascal Donoghue on this, there is still an awful lot further to go. We did some analysis of the previous crisis and we said, well, what can we learn from the previous crisis that we can apply in this pandemic crisis? And I may go into that in a few minutes if you if you want me to. But one of the things that I discovered in doing that research was that there was a broad balance in the previous crisis between increasing taxes. There was about 12 billion euros in austerity tax increases between 2008 and 2014. And there was about 12 billion euro in spending restraint. Now, I say restraint because 
to pay uh, public spending was restrained by about 12 billion but that doesn't mean it was cut it wasn't actually cut public spending went up during the last crisis but it went up by less than planned it went up by about 12 billion less than was planned so that's what i mean by restraint but it was broadly balanced between tax in- increases and spending restraints but what was really interesting was what happened in the recovery between 2014 and 2019, the balance was abandoned. Instead of r- restoring public spending by 12 billion, as should have been done, and reversing most of the tax austerity, what happened was that public spending went up more. It went up 17 billion euros a year. What taxes did the, the austerity taxes were not reversed. Um, taxation only, discretionary tax cuts were only 0.7 billion. So the point I'm making here is that even before the pandemic, um, the taxpayer, particularly the private sector taxpayer, was bearing on his or her back almost the full weight of austerity taxation imposed between 2008 and 2013. Because the narrative was, we don't need tax uh, cuts, what we need is public services. But as of course, as we now know from the National Children's Hospital story, the way to fund public services is not increase taxes, it's actually to reduce waste in public spending. We, 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 we saw massive waste in the National Children's Hospital, which is probably just the tip of the iceberg. So the whole narrative that we need tax increases to fund public services has been shot to pieces. What we actually need to do is stop wasting public money. Uh, we do need to increase public spending in certain areas our primary schools are chronically underfunded, um, but there's vast amounts of spending on some of the more wasteful areas of third level. There's vast amounts of spending on non-government organisations, some of which do a great job, by the way. Shout out to Peter McVerry, who was a guest on my news talk show. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of waste in the system, and I think that the idea that the taxpayer can pay for that, uh, frankly, is, is looking more and more questionable. And Mark, finally, two topics that are on the daily news agenda and have been for quite some time now. The first one is housing and the second one is in relation to cost of living. What's your assessment on both of those? Well, very rapidly on the cost of living in all of my books and and since I was an economics editor of the Irish Times, I have argued for a much, much stronger approach to competition policy. And I had the honour of being put on the Media Mergers Advisory Group in 2008 which had a little input into the 2009 Competition Act. I'm afraid we've really, really failed to have a tough competition policy. and that ha- There needs to be drastic reform of the Commission uh, for Consumer Protection and Competition. I'm afraid it's not strong enough. It's not properly staffed. It really needs to be radically overhauled in the way that we've seen some other state agencies overhauled. But, of course, the big, big challenge is housing. In 2008, as I said, we had this debate with David Williams. I argued that prices were going to go back up to Celtic Tiger levels because of population. That's what we've seen happen. But his narrative really prevailed. He's more popular. He's probably better looking than I am, probably smarter. Um, But the prevalence of that narrative means we didn't build the houses. We spent the money on the current side, but we didn't spend the money on the capital side between 2008 2018. And our population in that period increased by over 300,000 people. And yet the amount of money we were spending on public housing fell. Uh, And that is in spite of massive increases in GDP 
in that period. I mean, whether you measure it by GDP or GNI or whatever measure you use, our economy increased by 50, 60, 70 percent over that decade. And our population rose by over a third of a million. But our investment in public housing actually fell as a result of which we have unaffordable levels of housing, uh, which is a tragedy for so many people trying to to, uh, um, afford a family home. So, you know, in a nutshell, um, I think we have spent too much of on the wrong things on the current side of the account, with some exceptions. I mean, primary schools are one area which where, where they're gasping for resources. But we really now need to ramp up. Uh, and I think it was good to see Leo Varadkar say this recently. We really have to ramp up public sector investment. And uh, the old-fashioned idea that we have to be slaves to some budget rule on, 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 on fiscal policy on housing, it really doesn't make sense because... Um, those rules are very fine for Germany and France, which have older populations, declining populations, and their economies chug along at 2 or 3% a year growth, which is fine for them. But we have massive increases in population, massive increases recently in investment in our economy on the private sector side. We have to keep up with public sector investment. I've been arguing this in my book uh, and I, IBEC also, when I was there, agreed with me on this. And Danny McCoy, CEO of IBEC, has been has been passionate on that topic. We really, really have to get our public investment together. The good news is the National Development Plan is now beginning. That's 165 billion euro going to be spent on the economy in the next 10 years. Let's hope that we have the diversity of skills uh, in policy making in the public sector to make sure that money goes in the right places. Um, to the right areas, builds the houses, and that we don't see a repeat of what we saw in the National Children's Hospital, uh, where, you know, from a, a price tag of $700 million, which was already quite expensive for an, a children's hospital, we're now looking at a fi- final price tag of $2 billion. So we've got to make sure we get bang for our buck uh, on the National Development Plan in the next 10 years. Well, if you've just tuned in, that was economist Mark Coleman. And we look forward to hearing his insights over the coming weeks and months. Southeast Radio's Business Matters with Carl Fitzpatrick.